Today, we start a four-part series entitled Persevering in the Faith, a four-part series based on Paul's second letter uh, to the church at Thessalonica. And our passage today, if you've ever studied any of the letters in the New Testament, you know that there's a, a part of each letter known as the Thanksgiving. And that's what uh, this passage today is, the Thanksgiving of this ancient letter uh, that Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica. I'll read these words for us, but I hope you'll follow along in your Bible or your uh, bulletin as I begin to read at verse 3 of chapter 1. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God, that a thanksgiving does in an ancient letter like this is to sort of lay out what's going to be talked about in that letter. And you saw a lot of different things that I just read, a lot of different topics, and uh, we'll get to those eventually uh, through this series, this four-part series that we don't deal with all of the heavy stuff today. We're going to talk mainly about the last I don't know if you've ever been to a, a classic car show or not, but that's something that I enjoy doing because it, uh, especially when there's not a pandemic, because it takes you back, or it does me, to my youth, cars of my youth and, and cars of my dad's youth. And that's something that my dad used to do with me and my brother, and it's something I enjoy doing now with my children and even my grandchildren. And whenever you're at one of those shows, you can see some excellent paint jobs on some of those old cars. Not all of them are like that, but some of them are. 
Now, several years ago, I watched one of the best painters in the Rock Hill area at work. And you know, one of those shiny, smooth-as-glass finishes is not accomplished necessarily in the way that you would think. I mean, some of it is. Some of it's obvious. You know, you have to have good preparation. You have to have everything really smooth and sanded down well and all the imperfections filled in before you start to paint. So preparation is key. And there is skill involved in running a spray gun and knowing how much finish to apply. You know, if you get too much, you have a run. If you don't get enough, what they call orange peel and other things that you But when the car comes out of the paint booth after being sprayed, even with all of those things involved, it's still not very shiny or pretty. Not like you would think it would be. And that's when the real work begins. Because the painter will then do something that would surprise you it seems so counterproductive. After it's cured a little bit, he takes sandpaper to that brand new surface. Now granted, it's very fine sandpaper, and they use a lot of water, what they call wet sanding, but they wet sand that finish all over until he thinks he's sanded it enough. And then they begin the buffing and polishing process with the form of liquid compound where you throw that compound over and get that buffer going and buff and buff and buff and buff some more. You see, it's all of these abrasive practices combined together that will produce the kind of shiny, perfect paint job that car enthusiasts are expecting and for which they'll pay a lot of money. And once the car has gone through all of that, it's certainly a beautiful thing to behold. Now, why am I talking about cars other than the fact that I love them? Well, you may not have noticed, but we just read of something similar happening in the Christian life. Because look at what Paul is telling these Thessalonian Christians. We boast about you for your steadfastness and faith and all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. They were going through all sorts of abrasive situations in life because of their faith, because of their love, because of what they uh, proclaimed and believed, and yet, what is the end result going to be of all of that? Basically, Paul says that the return of Jesus Christ will bring eternal glory to His faithful servants for whatever they have suffered. That is to say, they will shine in His eternal glory. Keep in mind that Paul is not so much affirming here all of the things that are happening to them as he is affirming what is taking place within them, on the inside, in their hearts and in their minds. He's looking beyond the obvious difficulties and challenges within the people of the Thessalonian church in order to see the character, the inward character that was being developed in them, the growth, the spiritual 
physical material. Much the same idea we can see in Romans 5 when Paul is talking about because we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ, we have peace with God and it's through Jesus that we have access to this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in sharing His glory. And Paul goes on to say there, more than that, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. You see, we can rejoice in the bad times when we have the vision to see the end result, to imagine what it is that God is doing in your life and in mine because of all these things that He's allowing to happen to us. That's something to keep in mind while you live through a pandemic or any other sort of trying time, and especially when you're having to endure any sort of persecution. Now, as I've already told you, in the larger picture, this this, uh, passage is part of the thanksgiving that was common in ancient letters. And Paul gives thanks for the spiritual progress of the Thessalonians despite the difficult situation in which they find themselves. But as one scholar put it, the fact of their past progress and the assurance of the righteous judgment of the Lord are not sufficient to guarantee that the readers will stand firm in their faith and share in the future blessings. So we can see from the end of this passage that our persevering in the faith does not come automatically. You know, just because you're a Christian, just because you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to persevere in your faith all the way through to the end, it's a matter of continuing prayer and continuing faith. This is why Paul says in verse 11, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of here right at the end of this text that I want us to spend our time today. See, what we can learn from Paul's example as well as the words that he gives to his original readers as well as you and me. And first of all, notice how Paul is praying. He doesn't pray for their afflictions to end. You might think that somebody who's going through a tough time, you know, you would say, hey, I'm praying to God that all of this will end for you. Notice Paul doesn't do that. Instead, he prays for their spiritual maturity and growth in faith. That in essence, God will make them worthy of the calling He's placed upon them. But we can also see how Paul is praying when we look at this prayer within the larger context, this so-called thanksgiving. These words are given within the context of things. And we know from Philippians 4 
that Paul encourages us to pray with an attitude of thanksgiving. We can see all through his letters that Paul prays with an attitude of thanksgiving. He tells us to do the same there in Philippians 4 when he says, "...in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God." As if to say, yes, ask God for the things you need in life, but always go to Him with thanks, with an acknowledgement of what God has done and is doing and will do in your life in the days to come. In much the same way, here in both letters to the Thessalonians, Paul grounds his supplications in thanksgiving, which is a form of praise, yes, but is also an acknowledgement of God the Father as the one ultimately responsible for whatever blessings we enjoy in the Christian life and for whatever grace takes place. I've seen this referred to as our pattern in prayer, always grounding our prayers in thanksgiving. And with that, I want to stop long enough to cause you to ask yourself a question. What is your pattern in prayer? Do you take time to give thanks to God, to to praise Him for who He is? Or do you just immediately dive into the prayer with this? God, I need this and I want you to do that. In a time of year when we normally think about resolutions, it just might be that we can resolve to pray in a way that is more biblical than perhaps we have been doing in the past. Also, if we look at this 11th verse carefully, we can see that God is at work, that's obvious, but we're also to be at work. We notice that God is the one who will make us worthy of our calling. He's obviously doing that, but Paul also mentions every resolve for good and every work of faith, as if to say there's work for both. You know, God's busy in His sovereign plan. You and I, we are to be busy as well. As one scholar put it, there's a tension between divine activity on the one hand and our human responsibility on the other. In these words before us, as we've already said, Paul is emphasizing what God has already done for us. When Paul encourages us to be worthy of his calling, he's talking about what we would refer to in a Reformed faith as as the effectual God, when our hearts were changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, causing us to see our need for God's saving grace in Jesus Christ and what He's done for us on the cross for our sins. As chapter 10 of Westminster Confession of Faith puts it, God is pleased in His appointed and accepted time effectually to call by His Word and Spirit, out of that state of sin and death to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. 
see the call from God comes before we address it. We see the order of that in Romans 8. If you've ever wondered how does all of that work, you know, Paul tells us in Romans 8, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. But when God saves us, is that it? Are we simply saved to sit around and twiddle our thumbs until Jesus returns? Of course not. As Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, by grace you've been saved through faith, not because of works, lest any man should boast. It's because of what God has done, Paul says. But he goes on to say, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, God's prepared good works for you and me to do before we were even saved. And we're supposed to walk in those good works. We're supposed to live those good works by the power of His Holy Spirit once saved. I hope you see the distinction I'm trying to make here. God has done a wonderful work in you and me through His grace in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, What I'm hammering on here is that that kind of grace and that kind of work on our behalf by God the Father commands some kind of response. Are we truly living in a way which is worthy of our calling? The power of the Holy Spirit at work in you and me, which we should pray for every single day by the Spirit, enables us to fulfill what Paul's talking about here in the text. Fulfill every desire for goodness and every work of faith. In other words, just as John spoke about in his sermon last week on James 2, remember how James said, uh, you show me your faith and, and I by my works will show you my faith. This kind of moral effort that Paul speaks to in our passage is, as one person termed it, the outworking and expression of our faith. And it's all possible by the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, the reason this moral effort or these good works are important, and we just, uh, you know, we just honored Debbie Turner here this morning because of her service and years of work in the life of the church. The reason these are important is because of what Paul mentions at the beginning of verse 12 here in our text. He says, So that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. And glorified they mean. We have to remember what the Westminster Shorter Catechism teaches, and it teaches this because of what Scripture teaches, that our chief end is to what? Glorify God. Right, that's the main thing you and I are to be about in life. It's not about education or career, though both of those are important. It's not about legacy or possessions or 
or, or our families or any of that, those, those things are important. That is all about bringing glory to God in the way we choose to live and the things we do each and every day. Jesus speaks to this in His Sermon on the Mount when He, when he tells His followers, you are the light of the world. After he tells us we're the light of the world, so let your light shine that others may see your what? Good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Jesus connects how we live on the one hand with bringing glory to God on the other. He connects them together and Paul is doing the same thing in this text. Do you see what this means? This means that by the Holy Spirit and through His Word, through prayer, through worship and fellowship and praise and all sorts of things, God is working His grace into your life and into my life. You're thankful for His work and His many blessings and His mercies that are new each and every day. And yet your part is simply not to be thankful, but to respond to His grace, to work to serve, to shine, so that the name of Christ is glorified. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, not only that the name of Jesus might be glorified in us, but also we in Him, according to the grace of God. share in the sufferings of Jesus in this world because of our connection to His church, because of our witness in life, and the things that we stand up for, like the right of the unborn to life, or like the fact that in this day and time, a marriage is still a man and a woman, because that's what God teaches all the way back to Genesis 2. And I would guess that we rarely ever think about that, do we? And yet right here, it is. In this text. Whatever we suffer in this life, we'll be glorified like that. MacArthur signed the document to accept the surrender of Japan during World War II. I think that was on the USS Missouri. And there were all of these dignitaries and all of these diplomats and all of these representatives from all kinds of different nations there on board along with a lot of military personnel. And as he sat down at that table to sign all those documents, he insisted...
over all the U.S. forces and had to surrender in 42 at Corrego. And the other was Arthur Percival, a British general, who had to surrender in Singapore early in the year. And both of those generals were prisoners of war for years. And if you look up that picture online, you can tell it. Because their emotions, they look like skin and bone. But MacArthur insisted that they come and be right there with him as he signed those documents as a way to say to every soldier, every family that suffered, you are part this wonderful and yet hard fought battle. He was saying, those who have suffered will enjoy the victory. And that's the same way. When Jesus returns to this earth, those who have suffered for Him and with Him in the work of His kingdom will partake of His victory, and celebrate His glory with Him. You know, Paul talks about this in another way in Romans 8, when he's talking about the great gift that we have of of being sons of God. He says, when we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit Himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God and as children then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we might be glorified in Christ. You see, this, this doesn't even fit for the modern day. And as Paul tells us here in our text, all of this comes by the grace of God. In other words, there's another way to talk about the good news. 